All right, at this time, brothers and sisters, I want to invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, as we read, for the last time, the creation narrative, which is the prologue to the book of Genesis. The Holy Spirit, through Moses, the servant, the friend of the Lord, tells us this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and, he, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. <coughs> and God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and, their, and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind 
and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for giving it to us. We thank you for how you have created all that is, including the seventh day. We ask that you would be with us now as we reflect upon your word and grant us faith to believe and hearts to obey. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, brothers and sisters, so we come today to the conclusion of the prologue of Genesis. You may recall we, we, we finished up day six two weeks ago, and I was gone last week, but we've, we've said that the book of Genesis is divided up between ten Toledotes, these ten sections. This is the generations of, and then whatever. Five of them occur, chapters 1 through 11, Five of them occur, chapters 12 to 50, so the book splits in half, 1 to 11, 12 to 50, with the call of Abraham being kind of the hinge on which the book pivots, okay? So this opening narrative we've spent a lot of time discussing, the past several weeks discussing, and we concluded two weeks ago by saying that the creation of man, mankind amounts to the the climax, or, or I should say the crown, on the cosmos. That contrary to modern atheistic efforts to, to de-elevate the status of mankind, we are not glorified apes, we are not animals, though we are created from the same stuff. No, it says that we were created a little lower than Elohim. So you are closer, brothers and sisters, to God than you are to the chimps. You are full of dignity and worth. You are the image of the living God. 
And so therefore, there's a whole lot of oughts, aren't there, about how we treat other people. And why human life has a degree of sanctity where to take it maliciously is to forfeit your own life because you have dared to assault the image of God. And so a lot of emphasis was rightly, I think, placed on the status of mankind as the crown on the cosmos. That this world was created good, but we aren't a plague upon it. We aren't the virus affecting it. No, this world needs mankind to be all that it can be. It was created with potential for man to bring out of it by the work of subduing it and exercising dominion. But even as we look at the height of man in, its, in our first parents before the fall, it's important to know that this prologue doesn't end at chapter 1, verse 31. The prologue ends at chapter 2, verse 3. You see, the, the first week of creation doesn't end at day 6, does it? It ends with day 7. So, the creation of man is the crown on the cosmos, and I say that unapologetically. We are, we are the, the cherry on the top of creation. But the climax of creation, the climax of this story is the sanctification of the seventh day. The seventh day of creation is the absolute climax of this story. This seventh day is, is utterly unique in all the days. It is the only day where the day itself is blessed. The day itself is sanctified, that is, made or declared holy. No other day has that privilege. Now, this is, we're talking in, in history about the seventh day of creation. As we see in verse 2 of chapter 2, and on the seventh day, so that is a day, but there is a difference here because it's a, it's a literal day. It was the seventh day. It was the final day of the week, but it was a literal day making a, making a point. And so thus the, the typical conclusion that ends every other cycle of days, what does it say? Evening and morning, the whatever day, that's conspicuously absent. That's not to say this wasn't a literal day. No, it was a literal day making a spiritual and perpetual point. That is to say that on the seventh day, we see God coming to Sabbath. That's the Hebrew word here for, for rest. He Sabbaths. And he enters into what we would call an eternal Sabbath to which he then invites us. Now seven, seven days of creation, seven, we all know that certain numbers are in the Bible. God loves symbolism. He loves it a lot more than we do. Um, we, we're kind of arrogant. We, we think that, okay, you, you, you tell me the symbolism of something, and as soon as I understand the point that the symbol is trying to make, I can just discard the symbol. 
that the symbolic gestures, you know, the, the tipping of hat, that is, a, that is a tangible sign of respect. The standing when, it, you know, the Bible tells us to stand for the gray hair. You know, we don't do that anymore. But what's the point of that? Respect. It's a, it's a sign. Well, I, I kind of, one of the things I miss about the military is they understand the value of symbolic actions and gestures. Everything from the salute, the angle of the cant of the hand, everything is symbolic. And it carries and conveys and transmits meaning, and not just meaning intellectual, but it also transmits the togetherness and esprit de corps of the people sharing in the tradition. But the symbolism of the, in the Bible is huge. God loves symbolism. Everything from uh, the, these certain numbers conveying completeness or perfection, these, the, the priest's clothes later on, every single article had something. God's interest in symbolism includes even geometric shapes. So that, for example, the, the holy of holies was, was a perfect cube. Now, think about what this conveys, brothers and sisters. The holy of holies, a perfect cube. It's where God's presence resides, right? In the tabernacle and in the temple. Fast forward several thousand years, and we get, or a couple thousand years, and we get to Revelation, and the new Jerusalem is coming down from heaven. And what are its dimensions? 1,500 by 1,500 by 1,500 cubits. You know what 1,500 by 1,500 by 1,500 is? Shape-wise, it's a cube. So the Holy of Holies is a picture of something in heaven. And that something in heaven is then pictured as coming to earth. Okay? God loves symbolism. And this seventh day is so significant that it is hardwired into the DNA of this passage. It's so hardwired that this is the reason, if we go back to the, to the, first, or to the second sermon, that some would say it's not a, a, a straight narrative uh, that it's, that it, because it's so, it's so intentionally well written. No, it is a narrative. It's not a poem. But like I said, Moses didn't just jot this down on the fly he puts some effort into it. What do I mean? I'm not even going to go into all the sevens that are built into this prologue. But there are seven days. In verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He inserts an unnecessary word. We don't even translate the word, but why did he insert it? Because there needs to be seven words. So verse 1 has seven words in Hebrew. Verse 2 has 14 words. It's a multiple of seven. Look back at verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Those three words add up their Hebrew letters. It's a multiple of seven. Each of these three words is in this narrative in multiples of seven. Seven times, there's a pronouncement of something good. You get to the seventh day, and in verses 2 and 3, in Hebrew, they line up so that way there are three lines of seven words with the word seventh day in the middle. 
lining up. Now, people have gone even further in all the sevens that are in here. Those are just the easy pickings. Moses wrote this with a high degree of intentionality, would you not agree? And what's he conveying? Well, he, in this passage, he's doing two things. He's conveying, one, the perfection and completeness of creation. That truly, everything that was made was done with intentionality, with purpose. And in its original state, brothers and sisters, it truly was good. But in the seventh day itself, we see the establishment of what we would say the cadence of time. This is the first thing that the seventh day does for us, why it's so different. And some of you really need to hear it because you're burning the candle at both ends. God is not like us. God, When God rests, he's not recovering from being tired. When we rest, that's exactly what we need. Okay? Some of you are burning the candle at both ends. You're living your life as if you're working for Pharaoh. And God saves you from Pharaoh. When I was deployed, it was a special circumstance because you're in war, I get it. But I got to live life like it would be like, not under Pharaoh, my commander wasn't Pharaoh, but there was no time off. I, every, every day felt like a Wednesday. I mean, because you, you know, you, it never, no day felt like Friday where you, where you had the anticipation of time off. And no day felt like, like Monday, like, ugh. No, it was just every day was the drudgery of no end. Just, it never, it never stopped until I came back. Now, it, I understand that our jobs are taxing and tolling, but stop looking at your employment and, and just look at life. There's nonstop activity that we're engaging in. Nonstop creative activity, responding to problems, responding to issues, addressing just straight up making problems. I mean, whatever it is we're doing, it's nonstop. And if you don't break the cycle, the cycle will break you. And so the seventh day was created to give created beings a cadence to life. You were made to imitate God, to image God in your working. But you were made to imitate God and enjoying the fruits of your labors and resting, ceasing from those from those strivings. The rhythm of life is being established. You work, and then you stop. It's not, oh, if you can feel like it, it's stop. What is God doing when he stops? When it says he rests. That, it kind of throws us off because we know what we're doing when we're resting. Well, the word for rest or Sabbath has, a, in, in one sense, if you take it literally, it has a much more uh, hard, it, it, it means to cease. 
so the, the idea of recuperation and reinvigoration that comes along with resting really isn't there in the original word. It's, it's the hard stop of activity. It's the you're out plowing a field, and I don't care that you have to get it in before it rains. Stop. It's, it's the hard stop. But there's something else that's happening because God never stops working. Jesus tells us this in John, in John 5. He, my father has been working from the beginning until now, and so am I. So what is God doing then when he rests? Well, we have this theology of Sabbath that goes throughout Scripture. And in the seventh day, what we see is God has looked around at the end of the sixth day, and what does he behold? That it's very good. And so the picture is God coming and residing in his abode to satisfiedly, contentedly enjoy the work of his hands. When God Sabbaths, he is delighting in what he has done. And brothers and sisters, that is the invitation that is held out for us. You see, all throughout Scripture, God calls to the weary, to the worn, to come and find their rest in him. In Hebrews chapter 4, we're told that this, this rest that was pointed to by the old covenant expressions of Sabbath is still there. That this rest refers to being in God's presence, delighting in his person. still there according to hebrews the the sabbath is is an invitation to delight in the presence of god we all know westminster shorter catechism question one what is the chief end of man what is your main purpose in life to glorify god and enjoy him forever that first part we get we we get being created to glorify God. We understand that. Enjoy him forever? This is what Sabbathing is all about. When God establishes the precedent of Sabbath in the original week of creation, that is the precedent that becomes the invitation. It's the privilege our first parents enjoyed, delighting in the person and presence of God. That was what they enjoyed until they blew it. And it's the promise and the invitation held out for God's people throughout the old covenant, and they continually fall short. It's the promise and the invitation held out even now that you will be where I am. Doesn't Jesus tell us that? And we will see God as he is, the apostle tells us. That, that's amazing. <coughs> his presence will be so imminent there that we won't even need a sun to illuminate the sky. It's glorious. Unfortunately, what happens in our modern day, in the, about the last 200 years, it's become increasingly common for Christians to say, um, the Sabbath principle doesn't even apply anymore. It's been increasingly common for people to reject what the Westminster Confession of Faith teaches in chapter 21, 
section 7, that there's a positive moral perpetual command for all generations that one day in seven be set aside to delight in the presence of God, which is worship. And they point to Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17. You know it. I don't care what the 10th commandment says or what the 4th commandment says. I don't care what Genesis 2, 1 to 3 says. I don't care what Hebrew, I don't care. I have Colossians 2, verse 16. <laughs> Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So therefore, I have this verse, uh, I can do whatever I want. Okay. Well, we'll see. But what's happening here, what's been missed by, by modern antinomians, is that what Paul is addressing is not the Sabbath, and, and this is important. He doesn't say the Sabbath. He says, what does he say? A Sabbath. What is that even? Then what's the difference? Festivals, new moons, or a Sabbath. You see, the Old Testament legal code, that's the thing that he's addressing that was against us a few verses before this. The Old Testament legal code didn't just have the Sabbath, which God instituted at creation thousands and thousands of years before Moses gave the law on Mount Sinai. No, the Old Testament Levitical code had a whole social system of Sabbaths. That it wasn't just every week. There were Sabbaths of months and of years. and I mean, it was a whole thing, a whole cycle of life all centered around the concept of Sabbath, but they became formalized expressions. And so, by the time of the rabbinical period, which is the time after the exile, the three markers of identity as a Jew was circumcision, dietary laws, and the Sabbaths. Their religious life centered around days on the calendar. And he's saying... Do it or don't do it. Don't let anyone judge you because this was all, all that stuff was a shadow. He's not addressing the Sabbath. He's addressing that system. That's why in Hebrews chapter 4 we're told that the Sabbath rest still remains. And because there was a Sabbath rest that remains, that's why we gather on the first day of the week. But here in Genesis chapter 2, verses 1, 2, and 3, this whole thing isn't fleshed out. What God is doing here is laying the foundation as a creational ordinance that your life needs a cadence. And all the work that I've called you to do in, in subduing and in, 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 in having dom, uh, dominion over the earth all of that finds its ultimate culmination in coming into my presence to bask with me in the glory of the work of my hands. So that's what we do. Does your life need rhythm? Does your life need cadence? Do you need 
a little downtime with the Lord? Brothers and sisters, then you need a Sabbath. You need a rest. Because that's, that's where, when, and how we glorify God and enjoy him forever. Let's pray.